It's a pleasure to be with you here again. I've really been enjoying this series. I, I think the main thing for me is enjoying how engaged people are in this exploration. And I really appreciate any you know comments, questions, elaboration on, on uh, what we discuss. And so I'm gonna, again, show you uh, quite a few verses. And tonight, of course, we're talking about the beautiful and the unbeautiful and and how we see things um, may see something as beautiful which really has a um, well the we'll see in the suit in the suttas and in the in the poetry a concern for the danger in it uh, if we don't see the the uh, sort of unbeautiful side as well and even our perception can be very different depending upon our our views and our um, kind of uh, attitudes or conditioning. Um, and and one example that I've faced in in my own life as a bhikkhuni is that you know when when one um, especially more more for a woman than a man if you shave your head. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's definitely a, for the most part, very unusual thing for a woman to do. And there are people like me uh, before I did that that really saw it as beautiful. I'd see nuns with their shaved heads and their robes, and I was inspired and and just really thought it was such a beautiful thing. And but there are other people who find it incredibly ugly. I actually was introduced to a relative of my relatives once who couldn't look at me. He would glance and he would look away. He just, he could see the disgust, you know, and it's interesting. It's interesting what our perceptions um, create for us. And so we're going to be looking at that and, and just looking in general at cause and effect. You know, the Buddha really really took, you know, what is the result of this? What are the causes? What are the effects? And how does this play out over time? So we'll just get started. I'm going to share the screen. We're taking ugliness as beauty, or, you know, the way the, the lipalasa are described, you know, as we saw in our first meeting together. You know, when we when we think something is is beautiful, but it's not, that's when we're we're under the distortion of perception. But when we see the beautiful is beautiful and the ugly is ugly, then then we know, or at least we see see the reality of it, both sides. So this first verse is from the monk, the bhikkhu Abhaya. And, and it's in the um, Theragata, the monks inspired verses of the enlightened monks. And, and it's in the, it's a one verse and it's the 98th one in the list of verses. And so he says, when you see a sight, mindfulness is lost as you focus on a pleasant feature. Experiencing it with a mind full of desire, you keep clinging to it. Your defilements grow, leading to the root of rebirth. 
So there's a few really important points here. The one is this emphasis on mindfulness being lost. So when we see something we're really attracted to and we focus on the aspect of it that we're really attracted to, we lose our mindfulness. So now, you know, we, we in the world, we especially in Buddhist circles talk about mindfulness a lot, but actually, of course, the whole world is talking, seems to be talking about mindfulness in a lot of different ways. But how often do we think of it like this, that to be mindful of, you might say, both sides of something. So when we get excited about something and we see it, and this could be anything, this could be excitement for having the new house or the new car or the new job or, or whatever it is. And that excitement causes us to not see the other side of it. And, um, and then here he's talking about, we lose our mindfulness. We're not really, we're not really circumspect. We're not really uh, patient. We're not really calm. And we have a mind, the mind becomes full of desire where as we're clinging to this thing we see, as we cling to the sight and desire grows, defilements, you know, what are those defilements that grow, that greed, maybe aversion or hatred toward anything getting in between us and what we want <laughs> or that kind of thing. And that this is the kind of, craving that empower that powers us powers our or fuels our energy towards being reborn when we die and this is why there's a little um, common saying at karuna buddhist vihara you know wow that's beautiful but i'm not coming back for that <laughs> you'll hear this frequently <laughs> you know um you know, and maybe I'm just thinking about the maple trees going golden in the autumn uh, at, in the forest where we are. It's, it's stunning. Um, right now, the creeks are, are rushing, and it's just incredibly beautiful. And nature, in nature um, is wonderful in that it's possible to really love it, but you don't have that kind of passion for it that you might have for, you know, someone that you think is really attractive, say. It's got a different feeling to it. And yet, um, we'll often say, but I'm not coming back for that. <laughs> so it's like keeping our mindfulness going. Anybody have any comments, thoughts, questions? I don't, I can't see everyone because of the sharing. So if you raise your computer hand, it'll pop up when you want, want to say something. And if not, that's totally fine. We'll go on to the next one. This is Lakuntaka Badia Bhikkhu, another monk. Um, this translation is a little bit of um, both of the, the book we've been using, the Voices of the Enlightened Monks, and also some from Bhante Sujato. Um, and it says the monk's name is Badia. He lives in a beautiful forest monastery called Ambataka. 
Ambataka means it's a mango, it's the wild mango monastery. <laughs> Having uprooted craving, he meditates there happily. To enjoy themselves, some people need drums, lutes, and cymbals, but I don't need any of those. I am sitting at the foot of this tree, delighting in the path of the Buddha. If the Buddha were to grant me one wish, and I were to get what I wish for, I'd choose for the whole world constant mindfulness of the body. Now, just think about that. <laughs> you know, here again, and this, this particular verse was translated this way by Bhante Sujato, and I had to put it in here because the one that um, was in the translation um, by Gyanananda was, didn't really make a lot of sense to me. And this is really right on point. You know, this is a, you know, to wish for the whole world to have constant mindfulness of the body, to really see the body the way it is, <clears throat> to be aware. <clears throat> and then what would that lead to? We wouldn't be, well, he'll, he'll carry it on here. Some people make fun of me when, when looking at my physical appearance. So apparently this monk wasn't the most handsome in the world. Some people make fun of him when they look at his physical appearance, but others get carried away by my sweet voice. Both groups are captured by desire and passion, and they don't both don't know who I am, really. They don't know who I really am. And think about it, you know, when we see someone, when we hear something, when we hear someone's voice, if we're really, you know, if we're, we're carried away by that, we don't know them. We don't know what's really there. So they don't see my internal life, nor do they see my external life. Those foolish people are obstructed all around. They're just carried away only by my voice. Not knowing what's inside, but seeing what's outside, seeing the fruit outside. So I imagine that maybe they see that he's a good monk and they see the good results of that. They're also carried away by a voice. Understanding what's inside and seeing what's outside, those of unobstructed vision don't get carried away by a voice. And I think there are several, or maybe there's more, more ways to apply this, you know, like when are we carried away by what someone's telling us? carried away by the sound of the voice, but maybe also carried away by what they're saying, um, without seeing, um, really seeing them, or without understanding, and what's understanding what's inside, understanding what's inside the body, when we're attracted to someone. So I like this one because it's not just talking, of, it's not just talking about the body, it's talking about you know, how we're captivated by sense, input, impressions, perceptions. And then we don't really see things the way they are. Any comments, questions?
So here we have, okay, Matthew, yes. So I understand there seems to be the idea here to arrest uh, a pleasant feeling, but um, what about an unpleasant feeling? It's the same, right? Mm -hmm. I would think so, but yeah. a lot of the, the suttas seem to really spend most of their time talking about sense contact in a, a, a positive manner, and then it's our responsibility to keep that in perspective and i maybe you have some suggestion or maybe this isn't the forum but I've, i haven't really found a good sutta that talks about it you know in a negative way and then how to approach that so maybe yeah i mean of course the the desire for things to draw them close to us is probably a bit more common but it's the same thing when we want to push things away. And I think it actually gets mentioned in some of these verses for tonight. That's my sense. That's my kind of vague recollection. But I think to, you know, when we think about how do I deal with that aversion, I think we can do it a lot in the same way, you know, to really come back to what it feels like. And to come back to looking at where that comes from, like, you know, um, people tell me they're really averse to certain kinds of insects. I know this may not seem like a very uh, compelling example, but there's this insect called silver silverfish. I don't know if you have them where you live, but just last week, I think two different people were like, yeah, I really don't kill anything, but boy, those silverfish, they just disgust me. And now they're totally harmless. And, you know, like, what do we do with that aversion? And I, and I know the feeling, because when I first came in contact with those particular little insects, it was kind of a, like, ooh, you kind of draw back. For some reason, it has a little bit of a... Um, oogie feeling <laughs> but it's it's like well then you start looking at well why you know like um what's the problem last night i found the tiniest spider on the on the the quilt the uh, comforter on my bed and it was like it had a little web on the fabric and i couldn't even quite tell it looked like maybe a little fuzz of something and i was like but then it's, I think it's a spider, and I and I took something and I like moved the web, and I could see it's a little tiny, tiny, tiny spider. Well, this little being has way more to worry about engaging with me than I do with it. But it's ugh. <laughs> I don't want to get bitten by a spider, no matter how tiny it is. It still seems anyway. I gently, gently took it outside, but. It's like, yeah, we have aversion, sometimes much stronger aversion. And if we look at it, it's the flip side, it's the other side of the coin. And we can handle the feelings in the same way as the, as the desire, as the lust, as the craving. It's a craving to get rid of. You know, bawatana, we bawatana. It's just, you know, am I gonna, get pulled around by my perceptions and my feelings and my thoughts or am I going to 
think thoughts that keep building up this feeling or am I going to unpack that, observe it as I feel it in the body? So I would apply the same approach. Now, when I say that, it's like, you know, when there's strong lust, and we're gonna see what the approach here is that Venerable Ananda uh, recommends in this sutta here. And um, you think, well, then I, then I look at the unbeautiful. So when we have discussed, do we look at the beautiful? Maybe, you know, seeing, maybe that's helpful. Or maybe it's like looking at where's my disgust rooted? What am I, what am I afraid of? Or what am I um, kind of conditioned to dislike and why? Anyway, it's, I think it's the same as what we need to do with, um, with whatever other reaction we have. Does that, does that sound reasonable, Matthew? Yes, I'm, I'm listening very closely and processing what you're saying. I, I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Well, let's see if we have, I think there might be something in here, the, at least the flip side mentioned. Okay, this um, short sutta is from the Sangyutta Nikaya in the Book of Eights, which is the Vangisa Sangyutta. It's a whole little series of um, of poems, actually, mostly, uh, and stories about Venerable Vangisa. Now, Venerable Vangisa was a poet. He was an extremely gifted um, creator of verse. And um, I'm not going to show you his verses in the Taragata because it it is really long, <laughs> really long. <laughs> and he was very, um, yeah. He could he could just like he'd say to the Buddha, you know, I have this inspiration. I, this verse is arising. And these verses are arising in me, and the Buddha would say, go ahead, you know. And he'd be like just just uh, ad, you know ad libbing. Um, you know, beautiful verses, and a lot of them were with the um, the praise and the and the um, sort of uh, glorification of the Buddha was quite sweet. But here, he's you know he's a monk. He also had a certain amount of um, pride for a while in his uh, his uh, talent and poetry. But here, uh, Venerable Ananda is. They're staying in Savati and in the morning uh, going out for alms. And Venerable Vangisa was coming along as, as a junior monk or second monk um, to Venerable Ananda. And at that time, Venerable Vangisa became dissatisfied, uh, dissatisfied with being uh, celibate, I guess, and lust infected his mind. And then he, at, he addressed Venerable Ananda in verse I've got a burning desire for pleasure. My mind is on fire. Please, out of compassion, Gotama, tell me how to quench the flames. Now, he's called Gotama because he's of the same family as the Buddha. It's the family name, Gotama. Please tell me how to quench the flames. So, Venerable Ananda says, your mind is on fire because of a distortion of perception. That's exactly what we're working on. Turn away from the feature of things that's attractive, provoking lust. So you're seeing something that you're that you're 
attracted to, and you need to stop paying attention to that. See all conditioned phenomena as other, not me, not mine, as suffering, as not self. Extinguish the great fire of lust. Don't burn up again and again. So here Ananda is bringing in the bigger picture. Like how many times are you going to go through this? In this life, lifetime after lifetime. Um, isn't it enough already? With a mind unified and serene. So meditate on the ugly aspects of the body. With mindfulness immersed in the body, be full of disillusionment. So, you know, that's seeing in, in these sequences that the Buddha gives about what leads up to samadhi. And then at the point when the samadhi is there, the stillness of mind comes to a certain depth. We see the way things actually are. That's the turning point from a samatha or samatha meditation to vipassana. It's not like you're doing anything. You know, this idea that we do vipassana, okay, well, I understand the methods, but really the real insights and the real um, the wisdom that arises comes, comes automatically out of samadhi. So there's samadhi first in this case, and then insight. And what's the insight? It's an insight into the way things actually are. So when you're unified, your mind is, is serene, it's calm, it's, it's unified, it's not, it's not moving, it's still. And then you bring in the imagery of the body, particularly the inside of the body. And then when the mind is actually taking the body as an object of concentration, an object of focus, you're immersed in the body, really, you're really kind of might almost say feeling it, you know, it's like there's a real attention to it, a calm attention. And then you become disillusioned or dispassionate towards the body. Um, Sometimes they use the word disenchantment, but I think disillusionment is better. And then he says, meditate on the signless. And I got a little note there. This is something uh, that comes out of the commentary. Uh, trying equating this signless or animita. This is a, an opposite of getting animita or sign. And it's and it's he uh, the commentator equates it with insight, with vipassana. So because, and this is, he says, it's because it strips away all the signs of permanence, etc. You're just like really in the, in the stillness without any, any visualization. You're like not, you, there's no like sign. You give up the underlying tendency to conceive. Now this is huge. This is like enlightenment. You're, you're no longer relating to things as a self, as I am. Not even that um, very subtle conceit that I am. And when you comprehend 
you really understand conceit, you really understand this perception of self, so then you will live at peace. So all of these, you know, we've kind of been seeing this all along, all of these distortions in perception come out of the sense of self. When that sense of self dissolves or we see through it with wisdom, with um, insight, then there's peace and contentment. So we know when we're seeing something in a distorted way, it's we're disturbed and there's suffering. Any questions? Just feel free to raise your hand anytime if you have anything to say. So now this poem, also um, kind of a short or medium-ish size, short, really, poem, five verses. It's, a, it's from this, the Bhikkhuni Sundarinanda. And I've taken Aya Soma's translation. She's translated the, the um, Terigatam, the, the verses of the enlightened nuns. And um, Nanda, Sundari means beautiful. It's a beautiful Nanda, Nanda. And she was a Buddhist half-sister. So she was one of the children of Mahapajapati. Um, and I think she's younger than the Buddha. But according to some sources, I think her brother was maybe even older than the Buddha. I'm not sure. But anyhow, he had a half-brother and a half-sister. And this is his half-sister. And the commentary says that when the many women from the Buddha's clan came to be ordained as bhikkhunis, she went along not so much because she wanted to become a bhikkhuni, but because she wanted to be with her other family members. But then she really got into it. <laughs> and uh, part of how she got into it, she was, she was very, very beautiful, and she was very aware of that. And she was really into being beautiful. And she really, you know, really, um, what I want to say, um, cherished that quality. And the commentary says that the Buddha, through his psychic powers, uh, made it possible for her to see a vision of herself. So she's young. And she sees her own self aging and the whole process, like a, like a time-lapse photography, her body changing and aging and becoming old. And this was such a powerful image for her. And the, and the Buddha was telling her, Nanda, see this body as diseased, impure, and rotten. Cultivate awareness of the unattractive with a well-collected, one-pointed mind or well-collected still mind. As this is, so is that. As that is, so is this. Now that can be a little hard to like, what does that mean? Uh, in one of the translations, in the Gyanananda translation, he puts in both this body and a dead body are the same. 
but that's really what the meaning is here. Like when your body's dead and your body the way it is now, it's still got the same stuff. What is in the dead body is also in this body. Think of it like that. Only fools enjoy the vile smell of rotten winds. I looked at it in this way. So now this is, that was what the Buddha was saying to her. Now she's saying, I looked at it in this way relentlessly. By day and by night, saw it for myself with wisdom and I had a breakthrough. I heedfully investigated the origin of things to accurately see this body inside and out. Then I was disenchanted by the body and I became dispassionate, heedful, unbound. I am quenched and at peace, which is another way of saying that she's enlightened. And the, the master teachers really emphasize this um, deep reflection on the nature of the body as the Buddha did. And he starts, you know, the Satipatthana Sutta or the Mahasat, both Mahasatipatthana Sutta with the emphasis on this kind of investigation of the body with mindfulness. And we're going to actually uh, look at that sutta tomorrow night because I think it's it's the most uh, it's a good time after this discussion tonight to to really look deeply into that first um, foundation or aspect or method you might say of mindfulness how we investigate the body. This is also something I've been doing a lot in my own practice because <clears throat> the last trip to Thailand I talked to two different. Um, Kruba Ajahn's teachers and they spontaneously told me that this is what I should be doing now and it really is helpful it's really um, an amazing area of investigation and we also have a planned trip to Body Worlds uh, down in San Jose for anybody who's local if you want to let us know you want to come along and I think that is March 10th, yay, March 10th, so coming up, um, we're just going to, everybody's going to buy their ticket and just, you know, wander around the exhibit uh, down there at the Tech Museum in San Jose. And I find that uh, material very, very helpful, the, the plastinization, plastinization, something like that, a way of preserving actual human bodies or bodies of animals sometimes too are their human bodies and seeing the the real inside what it's like and then being able to take that into meditation and reflect on what's actually inside the body um, that we we carry around with us all the time we don't really know what's in there how it how it looks and and sometimes when we reflect on the body in this way we can get a sense of how it's doing how it feels and recently I heard a talk by Ajahn Brahm where he he said uh, someone suggested something about him maybe getting a checkup at the doctor. He said, well, I, I did had a checkup just this morning. I mean, he's, he said, I know this body so well and go into do meditation and you kind of know what's happening in there. 
And, and this is something that um, master meditators actually develop quite a lot of skill with to be able to really, really experience the body, uh, what's really happening inside the body. Yes, Matthew? Matthew, did you raise your hand? No? Okay. Yeah, I did. Thank you. Okay, sure. Um, thanks for your patience in answering my questions. I just have a point of clarification from my last question. I think I had some insight uh, just now into this particular practice. It seems that the idea is to be ever-present in the moment and to be aware of the fact that what drives us and moves us is maybe towards uh, senses that are pleasurable. We have contact. We do things for comfort. You know, we get cold, we put a blanket on. We want to surround our houses with nice things to look at. Um, you know, we want a good life. And so moving towards these pleasures that may give us some temporary satisfaction will eventually not be pleasurable and to pay attention to the body and its actual feelings towards what draws us towards what's pleasurable. And if we can be objective about that, then we can find the stillness of the mind in it. If, if I'm articulating that, I think that's beautiful. Kind of... Yes. Beautiful. Okay, good. And yes, then... yeah. <laughs> the second part though, I think I'm trying to express and I, I maybe this is a better way to say it is that when we're not in the present, we may be dwelling on the past. And for whatever reason, our minds tend to gravitate towards maybe more negative things or things we could have done better, or we should do better, or we're going to do one day. And that can create that feeling of aversion. And that's also worth investigation in the body and an opportunity to try and dispel that and, move towards uh, that stillness as well. Is that accurate? Yes. And the Buddha talks about, you know, letting go of the past. You know, there's, and, and other master teachers do too. It's like, let go of the past. There's nothing to really be gained. We think we're going to learn something, but maybe we learn a little bit by, you know, looking at some way that we spoke or acted or thought and changing it but beyond that the looking into the past and like oh i had it and now i don't have it or oh i want that again or i like i could have done this or all of that stuff is toxic it's really um it's more than unhelpful it brings suffering and you know the the buddha was cautioned us again and again to really be mindful of our of our mental states be mindful of our thoughts be mindful to know you know what am i why am i putting the causes and conditions in for this aversion to arise so it can it can go either way thinking about the past we can have aversion like you said especially i mean i think some of it is culturally conditioned to look back and feel guilty or to look back and feel like we made a mistake in, you know, 2020 hindsight, you know, I should have done this or I should have said that or whatever. But in, and also looking to the future, to want something to happen in the future, to want to become, every bit of it is about self. 
and and of course we we don't want to be harsh with ourselves because we're living in these bodies in this context in the world and we have all this conditioning so it's not like we should be upset with ourselves for our misperceptions and clinging and craving and all of that but to know that it's harmful to know that it's downpulling and it's like you said how can we come to this peace and tranquility this equanimity about all of that understanding it in a larger context this this craving for comfort this craving for things that are nice there's no end to it it doesn't get satisfied this craving to be rid of stuff this craving to be get past somehow the unpleasantness of life there's no end to that either and if we can really take that in we can be happy even though all this other stuff is going on and and i've known people who you know like major things happen to them they get some terminal diagnosis and they're fine how's that happen it's because they put their energy into seeing things the way they are and they they recognize the joy of the dhamma the joy of the spiritual life the joy of what's beyond this material world and and the buddha wasn't talking about heaven either i mean he's like yeah heaven's a whole lot better than some things you know i say but what we really want to do is see so clearly that we don't crave anything that we really become quenched it's a beautiful word that our thirst for life for love for everything is quenched and we're at peace now of course we also have like boundless love at that point there's no limit to love and compassion and joy over goodness and equanimity and it's like yeah once we can look beyond look look realistically at what's at hand mindfully present paying attention seeing what the results are of clinging and craving whether it's pulling things towards us or pushing things away and then becoming free of it all this is the point thank you So now this one is by Venerable Yanananda and it's um Subha Bhikkhuni. And this is a long one, but it's a great story. I I did sprinkle in some translation from some other sources, but it's mostly Venerable Yanananda. Now, get ready for a good story. This is not quite your bedtime story yet, but <sighs> On one occasion, the nun Subha was going, that's, um, was going to the delightful Jivaka mango grove. So she's a bhikkhuni, and she goes to meditate in the grove, the forest. And suddenly a rogue, it's a bit of a dated word, but you get the picture, appeared and stood blocking her way. Subha said this to him. What wrong have I done to you that you should stand here blocking my way? 
it is not fitting, sir, that a man should touch a nun. So he's like grabbed her arm or something. He's like, oh, okay. She says, I deeply respect the Buddha's path. The sublime one has taught us about the precepts. I protect those precepts purely. I am taintless. So she's enlightened. I am without any defilements. So why are you standing here blocking me? Your mind is dirty and my mind is pure. You're a defiled person and I am a taintless person with no lust. I'm liberated from every single defilement. So why are you standing here blocking me? And the man says, you're still young and you're not ugly. What good will nunhood do for you? Throw away your robe. Come, let's enjoy ourselves in this forest full of blooms. The blooming shrubs release a sweet smell in all directions with their pollen or their flowers. This is the beginning of spring and the weather is very comfortable. Come, let us enjoy ourselves in this forest full of blooms. The trees with blossoming crests sway in the wind as if they were singing and dancing. You've entered this forest alone. What enjoyment is here for you? This fearful forest is inhabited by packs of predators and surrounded by cow elephants agitated by rutting bulls. I mean, you know where his mind is, gee. In this frightening great forest, do you wish to walk alone without a companion? So he goes from let's, let's try to entice her to let's, let's scare her, you know. Your beauty is beyond compare. You're like a statue of gold decorated with the finest kasi cloth. Oh, incomparable one, you shine with beauty like a decorated golden statue. You're like an angel in the Chitalata forest. The Chitalata forest is a heaven realm forest. I'm dazzled by your beauty. If we both were to live together in this forest, I would devote my life to you. Uh-huh. Oh, you have crystal clear shining eyes like that of an angel. There's no other person dearer to me than you. If you will grant my bidding, come and live happily with me in my house. I will offer you my luxurious palace and servant girls who will always attend to your needs. And then you'll wear kasi, the finest of all clothes, and you'll put on flowered garlands and perfumes. And I will make you many ornaments of gold and jewels and pearls. In that palace, there is a bed made of sandalwood with a comfortable mattress and a well-washed, beautiful coverlet. It is spread with a new, costly woolen coat. You can sleep very peacefully on this fragrant bed. So why are you living this life of a nun? It's like a blue lotus lake possessed by a demon. Because of your celibate life, you will grow old with your limbs untouched by any man. And Suba says, what is it that you consider substantial here in this body, which is full of filth, filling the cemetery, and is destined to break up? What is it that you appreciate so much when you look at this body? He says, it's your eyes that I appreciate. Your eyes are extremely beautiful, like those of a doe, like those of a nymph who lives between mountains. When I see your eyes, my desire for sensual pleasures increases all the more. You're like a golden statue. The eyes in your face can be compared with the petals of a red lotus. By seeing your eyes, my desire for sensual pleasures increases all the more. You, the one with the big eyes. You, the one with the pure gaze. No eyes are dearer to me than yours. Your nymph 
you nymph with pleasant eyes, even if you go far away, I shall always remember your eyes. And Suba says, no, you wish to go by the wrong path. You seek to have the moon as a toy. You wish to jump over Mount Meru. Understand me, the one you wish for is the daughter of the Buddha. It's like, you're not getting it anywhere with me, dude. <laughs> in this world with the gods, nothing can arouse lust in me. I don't know what lust is anymore. By following the path of Nibbana, I have uprooted. I've rooted out lust. Like sparks from a pit of a burning coals cooling down, like destroying a bowl of poison, I destroyed lust. By following the path to Nibbana, I have rooted out lust. You may seduce a woman who is not insightful or who hasn't seen the Buddha through the Dhamma, but not me. You bother me. You're bothering me. So I've realized the true nature of life. Whether I am insulted or praised or feel pleasure or pain, my mindfulness is well established. I have understood that all conditioned things are disgusting. My mind does not cling to anything at all. I'm a disciple of the Buddha. I travel in the vehicle called the Noble Eightfold Path. I have pulled out the dart of lust and destroyed the taints. My heart only delights in an empty hut. I have seen well-painted wooden puppets fastened by strings and sticks. They dance in various ways. If these strings and sticks are removed, thrown away, scattered, and broken into pieces, then there's no puppet in them whatsoever. In which part of them should one delight? This body is also like a puppet. It does not exist without supporting factors. As it does not exist without supporting factors, in which part of the body should one delight? Just as you see a picture painted on a wall of a woman colored with paints, if people mistake it for a real woman, it's because their perception is distorted. You're blind. You run after an empty thing, which is like an illusion placed before you by a magician. You run after a golden tree someone had in a dream. You're like a playing, you are like playing in a puppet show in the midst of the people. These eyes are like little balls set in hollow sockets with a bubble in the middle smeared with tears. Inside these sockets, there are eye secretions, various sorts of tendons, and flesh rolled into balls. The pretty lady Suba was not attached to her eyes. With an unattached mind, Suba suddenly tore out one of her eyes, and she said, here, take this eye for yourself, and straight away she gave it to the man. Instantly, the rogue's lust ceased, and he begged her pardon. Oh, celibate nun. May you recover soon. Such a thing will not happen again. If one tries to attack a noble nun like this, it's like embracing a blazing fire. It's like grabbing a poisonous snake with your bare hands. That person won't gain any happiness. Please forgive me. Well, the nun was freed from the rogue and went to the excellent Buddha. The very instant she saw the one with great marks of the excellent merit, the Buddha her eye was restored to its former condition. She gave him quite a teaching.
I don't know if you've ever had that urge to rip out an eyeball and hand it to someone. <laughs> I have to say, there was a point. There was one point um, where I felt like I wish I could have. <laughs> but some of us just don't have the hits, but for that, I guess. anyway, um, yeah. Any comments? Do you like how his lust ceased? We stop to that. Any any comments or questions or thoughts? Okay. I think this might might be our last one. I can't remember. This is the Bhikkhu Parasarya. The monk Parasarya was a meditator. When he was seated alone, secluded, these thoughts came into his mind. As a human, one should work for one's own benefit. He should act without harming others. What should be his duties? What should be his behavior? There's another translation that says that we should act for our own benefit and for the benefit of others. A human's sense basis can be used for their welfare or their harm. If one doesn't guard their senses, they will surely lead to harm. If one guards their senses, they will certainly lead to happiness. So that's interesting. It's not just, it's not about not using our senses. It's about knowing how to use them. Therefore, the one who acts for his own good and the one who doesn't harm others should protect the faculties well and handle them properly. When one's eyes chase after beautiful forms, if one does not understand the danger of their unrestraint, they won't be able to escape from suffering. When one's ears chase after beautiful sounds, if one does not understand the danger of the unrestraint, they won't be able to escape from suffering. Not knowing about the removal of desire If one smells things, being caught up with sweet fragrances, it won't be able to escape from suffering. If one recollects flavors thinking, this is bitter, this is sweet, and this is sour, their mind will be tied by craving for taste. They won't be able to understand the nature of this mind. That's interesting. You won't be able to understand the nature of mind if you're caught up with taste. If one recollects tangibles, so things that you touch, thinking this is lovely and is pleasant to touch, the mind will become attached to it. 
And as a result, when lust invades the mind, then we will have to suffer from various pains. When mind objects enter the mind, thoughts. If one is in, unable to guard, guard the mind from those objects, they will have to suffer because of all of the five senses. This body is like a beautiful and attractive painted pot made by a skillful artist, but it's filled with pus, blood, and a lot of filth. Life is like something bitter with sweet enjoyment, a painful thing which has a pleasant attachment. The one who doesn't understand this lives like one who licks a razor smeared with honey. There's more to this verse, but I want to stop here. Yes, Holly. So I'm familiar with this topic, but I'm having difficulty really relating to it. And here's a couple of Drains of my thought, but I appreciate your comments. And I, I'm not unusual. I think in feeling like to to have to see the body as as disgusting or vile mm. seems a little extreme. And I grew I grew up in Future Farmers of America and learned and well in a young aged. Uh, Slaughtered a variety of farm animals and saw lots of insides. Yeah, and I know what's in there. You grew mm-hmm. up on a farm, um, ranch, and then also being uh, the age that I'm at, I've seen a lot of things go wrong in bodies, mm-hmm. and I don't feel ignorant of what the many ways the body can go south. Mm-hmm. And then the third one is that I've fallen in love several times in my life, and those people seem incredibly beautiful at that time and often for uh, many years past. Is And so I kind of have trouble interpreting these tra- teachings of the Buddha. I can see them related to young people full of lust or people who don't realize that all things end. Your comments, please. When you're reflecting on these experiences, there's mindfulness. And there is a tenderness, a sweetness, an acknowledgement that there is beautiful. There is the beautiful. And what's beautiful about those people that you've loved? You know, it's their kindness. It's their gentleness. Maybe it's their courage in overcoming various difficulties and defilements and so on, right? that's the point. I mean, it's true that a lot of these verses are trying to really like get us to look at things we haven't looked at, if we haven't looked at them. Getting us to realize that in a 
unguarded moment. We might be caught off guard somewhere and kind of get caught up in something. And, and we get, just like in the other, um, with Balasa, just like the other distortions of perception, we can tell when, when we're seeing things that are in a way that's not true to reality because we're suffering. Mm-hmm. Yes. If we can truly see these things that you're describing in the true light, we won't suffer with it. And, and so every one of us, until we're fully enlightened, has some amount of um, effort to make and attention to put on the way things actually are. But I'm so glad you're bringing up the reality that, you know, it's not just about seeing what's ugly as ugly, but it's also about seeing what's beautiful as beautiful. What are those beautiful qualities that we care about and cherish that are good to reflect on and good to remember and good to care about? And, you know, it's, it's not wrong to see the beauty of a rose in full bloom. It's just wrong to stop there. And so what you're talking about is not stopping there. I too, I grew up on a farm. When I was small, I saw sows giving birth to like, you know, 10 little pigs and one of them will be dead, come out dead, you know, or whatever. You see a lot. That little piglet gets scooped up with all of the manure and thrown in the in the in the manure spreader. You know? It's like there are so many ways in which we try to cover up the nature of life in our more kind of refined culture. And sometimes we need to come back to the reality that we need we need to anyway if we want to wake up. And what does it cause? It doesn't cause us to be grumpy, um, you know, disillusioned. That's not what it's meant by the disillusionment. It's not, it's not a like, oh, now I'm kind of down on life. You know, you know this. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. But it's to see the amazing potential we have as human beings. To see that we can look at things actually as they are and free ourselves from craving, free ourselves from aversion, free ourselves from delusion, and that it is up to us. We can't um, just catch it from someone else. Nobody else is going to do it for us. It can't be done that way. We've got to see it ourselves. I'd love to hear some other comments from others. I can think of two examples in my life where I saw the beautiful as unbeautiful eventually. I stayed with the training of horses way long into my second marriage to where it was detrimental to my partner relationship and stressful to stay in the number of hours and days working with horses. So I stopped at that level. On a more humorous note, uh, I was thinking of my... um, long fondness for Hershey's chocolate chips, which I usually have a big bag of in the pantry where I can conveniently walk by to get just a few more. Um, And I just got my 
uh, blood work for the year and my cholesterol is ticked up and my doctor says we need to talk. And uh, I put the bag of chocolate chips in the very back of the pantry and I haven't really had a craving for them, although that might be temporary. Um, it just made me think of what it was doing, what those kind of fats were doing to the lining of my blood vessels and the effect that would have on my cardiovascular system and that I had a choice that was really not that hard to make. Um, I could fall off the wagon again, though. <laughs> yeah, maybe a little bit won't, you know, and then you'll think about it again. But that's it, right? How do we how do we come to grips with the true nature of life? This is kind of like on a very practical level. Can we be ready for the changes that are inevitably going to come? And we don't know how or why, you know, when, you know, we don't know. But the body's going to pack up. And can we be happy and at peace with that? This reminding me of the story Ajahn Brahm has told many times of when he was a young monk in Thailand and he got scrub typhus and he was super, super sick and wasn't sure what was going to happen and he got put in a hospital. He said the hospitals at that time in Northeast Thailand were not very good places to be. And, uh, you know, like really a lot of, a lot of pain and suffering. And, and, um, and when Ajahn Chah came to sit, was going to come see him, he thought, oh, good, the master's coming to see me. A lot of you know this story. It gets told a couple of different ways. The way Ajahn Brahm, I've heard him tell it, he said, <coughs> Ajahn Chah has said to him, you know, Rama Wangso, you're going you're gonna to get better or you're going to die. You're going to live through this or you're going to die. And you've got to be at ease with both. And uh, in stillness flowing, when Ajahn Jayasaro recounted this story, he said, you're going to get better or you won't. So a little gentler. <laughs> but why be gentle? You know, it's like, Ajahn, I don't know how Ajahn Chah actually said it, but it was clear, you know, you're going to get better, you're going to get worse. And getting worse is this other outcome. And you have to be at peace with both. So... It's not like we can expect ourselves to automatically be at peace with both, except the way things are right away. But if we have the Dhamma and the practice um, in our, in our uh, experience, then we can come to that pretty fast. We can work with it and be kind to ourselves the whole time. And the thing that's so fascinating about the more we see things as the way they really are, the more happy we become. And the more light and the more caring, the more loving we become. And so this is this is like, you know, the ordinary, I would say the untaught ordinary person, the way it says in the sutta, is someone who's never encountered the Dhamma. And you know how our... Uh, society conditions people and you know what success means in the world and you know how you're there's a lot of effort to try to avoid you know seeing death and being around it or um you know like trying to stave off any kind of 
failure of the body and you know it's and then and then to take it if when it happens to take it as the worst possible thing that could happen you know that kind of that kind of thing and and you know sometimes you know i'll be observing there are so many people like just living on this street here oh so many people and they're all gonna die all of us are all gonna die at some point it's amazing we don't see more of this happening Right. I remember um, being in Bodhgaya and there's a parade of people carrying a body down the street. Everybody stops, puts their hands in Anjali. You know, and even back in Indiana when I was growing up, the funeral procession, you know, all the cars following a hearse to the cemetery. I just don't see that very much around here in the Bay Area in California. No, it's like body gets whisked away, it gets cremated maybe, and you have a a nice celebration later with a nice photo of them when they were looking really good. And you know, are we really thinking about it? Are we touching into the sacredness of it all? The spiritual energy rising that comes sometimes when we're having some of this great change in life. Um, are we really, you know, working with this material? Yeah, thank you for sharing, Holly. It's great. What are the challenges you find in this? How do you see mindfulness related to this? You know, that wish of the monk for all the world being mindful all the time, mindful of the body. What do you, you, how do you see it? Yeah, Val. Um, yeah, I love the last two lines of this verse that we that we're covering right now about licking the honey coated razor. Um, and you're you're asking about mindfulness. That to me was such a visceral, evocative image. Mm-hmm. of how keen our mindfulness should be because the moment that we um, relax, <laughs> we're going to get our tongue just sliced open. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I love that image. I mean, it's a horrible image, but it's <laughs> a great Yeah, image. it really struck me as quite poignant too. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, one can feel it almost (laughs) and and I think that that is the level of keenness that we need to break through that is the level of danger that we face it's not a light thing to cut through all of this that's right I agree I mean, the delusion is really thick, and we're encouraged to engage in it all the time. 
And it takes that effort to keep coming back to reality, keep bringing the mind back to reality. Hey, hey, look at this. Why are you so caught up in this other thing? What is so important about that? I mean, we get wrapped around the axle about all kinds of stuff in our life. And then, you know, if we really take in the true nature of life, so much of that just doesn't matter. Just not important anymore. We don't have to be so upset with each other. We don't have to be so upset with ourselves. It's like, yeah, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there seems to be great freedom there. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Doug? Thanks. Um, yeah, it's just such a challenge to, you know, I feel like there have been really, really brief moments in my life where um, I've really understood it, where I've seen it clearly, but it's just, um, it's so hard for it not to be an abstraction. And um, I mean, part of that is my mind fleeing from it. Part of it's that it just takes an enormous amount of stillness um, of the mind to see it clearly. But I, I guess that's the task. But Man, it's it's just hard to. It's easy to talk about it for me. You know, I'm getting older, and as Sarah always says, the cataracts are getting louder. But <laughs> yeah, that's just an abstraction. So when when the yeah, anyways, just just really it, that's the practice, I guess, is to be still enough that you can you can see it clearly. But thank yeah. you. Thank you, Doug. I think what's coming up as you say that for me is is still enough and humble enough. You know, it's like the humility is what's the humility and the love for every every living being is there when the when the sense of self starts to crumble. We let go of that. We let go of that facade, the the face we put on to engage with others and you know there's a incredible humility there and a softness and a caring that doesn't have clinging with it it's like wow that is so amazing yeah andrea I think it's been kind of a constant practice for me these days and it's the like making trying to make the ugly an ally in a way to contemplate suffering in almost everything. <laughs> like yesterday I was kind of happy of buying myself some sunblock because I get exposed a lot to sun because of my job and but then I was like it's great, you know, I'm doing something good for myself and it's very nice, but it's so expensive. <laughs> mm -hmm. So there's always something, you know, like 
I'm happy about something or I see something I like or I taste something I I like and then I'm like but there's this thing that doesn't make it perfect and it's great like it's the nature of it so yeah it's just it's it's been very helpful to kind of kind of put some distance between me and the object I attach some happiness to yeah yeah and it's it's interesting because it's not like we're discouraged from being happy in in the dhamma it's discouragement from being happy with things that are going to lead to happiness <laughs> you know it's like be happy with the things that do lead to happiness and and then really the happiness is is rich and deep and you know it's also fleeting in us until we're really awake but it's um you know you can get a sense of the the authenticity of it and it's always there there's always something to be um happy about and to see the beauty in you know acts of kindness and generosity um you know any 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 kind of of application of wisdom or confidence and virtue and goodness you know so there's there's always something you know and you see it even more sometimes when we're in those dire straits so powerful hey deborah Can you hear me? Yep. Okay. Hi. Um, I feel like I struggle more with seeing the beautiful. Mm-hmm. I already see plenty of the ugly. I'm more of the, I guess, the aversive type. Um, and um, and I, you know, I, I feel like I look for it more now. The, you know, the qualities of, like the Brahma Viharas and and. Um, generosity and such but it, mm-hmm. it feels like it's in short supply i mean outside of of the buddhist communities mm-hmm. um and this is this is where i struggle i had i had a strange day where i got a um like a scam phone call but mm-hmm. it was a really scary one and it it, mm-hmm. it i i was on it for like 10 or 15 minutes until i could actually figure out that it was a scam Um, but then after I got off the phone, I called the police and, and she said, oh, we got a lot of calls from people today getting that same scary scam call. Mm -hmm. So I went on to, um, uh, next door, the, the app that people in neighborhoods have to warn people about this. So hoping that I was hoping like, oh, I hope nobody else, somebody will see this and then they will avoid Mm -hmm. getting involved in this scary conversation. And then two people responded with mean comments <laughs> and I, yeah, and I wound up taking it down and I thought, Oh, okay. I thought I was doing something nice. Um, but, hmm. uh, but yeah, that was one of those things where I'm like, Oh, okay. Where, <laughs> where, where, where is some of that, you know, the the goodness, the, hmm. these good qualities, is it just only supposed to be within myself? You know, like I'm just, relying on myself for for these types of things or Mm -hmm. yeah i mean 
I'm glad you're bringing this up because, of course, our mental states are conditioned. Um, we're all dealing with whatever mind we've got and whatever conditioning we have. And so, yeah, for, for many people, it's, it's much more, instead of being attracted to things, it's much more about being averse to things and sad, uh, maybe, or uh, frightened or, you know, like this kind of, um, maybe even sometimes hopelessness or whatever those negative mental states are. And it's so important to surround yourself with good people. And when I mean say good people, it's, you know, like the, the Buddha will say, this person's a bad person. And I always kind of go, no, you don't say they're a bad person. They do bad things, but they're not bad people, you know, kind of like, but I get what the point is, you know, if we're doing bad things, um, we're creating problems for the people around us. And it's so important to find people with wisdom and virtue and I mean, the Buddha talks about those four qualities of faith, generosity, virtue, and wisdom that often he talks about together and how important it is to find people who can, um, you know, we can see that in them. And, and a lot of that generosity needs to be turned inwards, uh, you know, so that we recognize that those qualities do exist in us and and in others, even when they're covered over um, quite significantly with some of the, the other people with their own conditioning. And, you know, it's, it's really challenging sometimes to see past um, the negativity and past the um, unwholesome actions and and speech that you hear and see and and to recognize that there's a story there you know there's something wrong something happened to them you know and and uh, who knows those people who responded in a negative way it's hard to kind of imagine uh, knowing that you were trying to help people but you know maybe there's just so much fear and and negativity and and um yeah, and I don't know what kind of scary call it was, but I know when my mom was getting older, she'd get these calls, and the ones that really scared her were the ones where they act like it's one of her grandchildren, and they're in jail, or they're, they were in an accident, and they need money, and how to get the money, and, um, you know, thank goodness we didn't, we, we removed the possibility of her being able to use her own money by that point because she was really really scrambling to try to figure out how to send these people money and um she called me up and she said i'm not supposed to tell you about this but i was like oh my god <laughs> no way. she was so upset and it was so i mean talk about the net, the karma that people are making right man to do things like this and feel sorry for them and um yeah so you know all the things that Buddha encouraged you know surrounding ourselves with people who are virtuous and kind and trustworthy 
good friends in the Sigalaka Sutta, the ones who are good friends, not the ones who are bad friends. Um, and, and yeah, I, I know that there's a lot of goodness in, in all kinds of places, not just in our, in our Dhamma groups, but we certainly have a lot of it here. Just I'm so, like, sometimes I tell people, I love my job because I'm surrounded by so many good people. <laughs> And even if there's other things going on in their lives, they're on their best behavior when they're around me. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, it's so great. Um, so, you know, we can hopefully do what we can do to um, find encouragement from, from the people around us and from the situations uh, that we can try to put ourselves in into. So, yeah, and, it, and again, this, this understanding that the aversion is just as much of an, of an inhibitor as the, as the craving, as the um, desire for something, the desire to get rid of and that's kind of see in the dark side um, in, in, in as a distortion is also really um, needs to be cared for and just and just to accept them like i said accept the mind that we have and apply the medicine that the buddha offers because he's got like so many tools and and if we can you know learn how to use them we can get past these defilements yeah. Thank you for sharing, Deborah. Thank you. Karen Wynn? Thank you. Um, yeah, I've been sitting here feeling a little confused about it because I feel like I see a lot of beauty everywhere. Like, um, Okay, well, just to backtrack, growing up, I was the person who wasn't grossed out by things, and I would bandage up, you know, anybody who was bleeding, or I was the crisis person, you know, the person who could handle any whatever. It's like, oh, you got into a fight or whatever, uh-huh. and um, and none of those things ever bothered me, and, you know, I was always like, like, my mom is grossed out by everything. And so if there was a, a rat or a bird that got into the house or anything, like it was always me that sort of dealt with it. Yeah. And um, I worked a lot of jobs where like I was with animals and, you know, there's poop and pee and yeah. vomit. And it's like, that's just how it is, you know, and it's like, it doesn't gross me out. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, like, oh, and I worked with elderly folks and I felt like I sort of found my niche because they were all so beautiful to me Mm, yeah they were you know Mm -hmm. and it's like you know the gentleman who learned how to dance at the Fred Astaire dance studio and he was still (laughs) such a lovely dancer and I got so much joy from watching him dance at the senior center and Mm. so I it confuses me like I look on the screen and like everybody here, whenever I'm here, I am always like sort of, it, it's like Holly described, you know, you fall in love with somebody and, yeah. 
you just think they're so beautiful. I mean, I feel that way about everybody here, you know, and it's like every time I'm in a meditation thing, it's like, can we just not like close it down because I want to stare into everybody's faces. I mean, maybe that sounds weird, but it's like, it's sort of like being in love, you know, it's like, I just love everyone, you know? It's great. And so I don't, I don't get it. Like, I, I feel like I'm confused. Am I just, Oh, but you remember <laughs> lust, don't you? Yes. You do you remember? Lust? Yeah. Do you yes. remember having that, that like you're not really in love with the person you're just in love with lust have you ever had that experience i've had that experience i've had it in the past i know how deluded we can be i know how we can misperceive like that one that one verse is where that he says you know when they make fun of my my appearance they don't know me when they when they get so uh tape taken carried off by my voice they don't know me so it's like i think we can probably all recognize or remember recall or maybe we're experiencing any time um when we're not seeing clearly the way things are you know it's like it's wonderful that we can see the beauty in people when, you know, the beautiful qualities. It's wonderful that we can see that in each other and see it in ourselves. You know, but this is where the spiritual life is. The beautiful qualities in us are the ones that are really, you know, on that continuum to awakening. And that's wonderful to see that. To see, you know, and, and even if we, if we, <laughs> like, um, I think one of the retreats you were actually at, um, let me see, I don't think this person is present. <laughs> there was a, an older fellow who, who got pretty grumpy with us about the sound system and uh, wrote a kind of a, energetic note about it and um i got the biggest kick out of it because i mean we we wanted of course to make the sound uh, system work so that he could hear what's going on it's not like we took that lightly but the part that was cute was that ayachitananda was just so like delighted with this guy's grumpiness and we decided he was just grumpy enough to be endearing you know, so even, you know, like it was sweet. I mean, it's, it's like, and, and we can see beyond the, um, the ugliness. And that's, that's beautiful. And that's good. It's like, we have to have the distinction between the false beauty and the true beauty. We have to have the st- distinction between the false ugliness and the true ugliness. And our defilements are ugly. They're selfish. And they they encourage us to do the wrong things. And that's ugly. It's ugly when we're not honest. It's ugly when we're not generous, stingy, and all those human, you know, things that are also part of our conditioning. So 
This is about seeing the way things actually are. And when we see those beautiful qualities in a person of any age, and when we see those things in ourselves, and we see the way the Dhamma cures us, that's beautiful. It does uplift the heart. And that's great. Thank you for sharing that, Kirtland. Thank you, Aya. And that helps. I mean, I know what you mean. I mean, like, you know, especially when I was younger and I would objectify people when I didn't even know them, you know? Yeah. It's like they would be a beautiful person and I would see them, they would catch my eye. So, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. It's just like, am I, I was just thinking like, am I deluded? Because like, I look at everyone and you're all so beautiful. (laughs) But, you know, I'm reading the book on how to be an anti-racist and, you know, like the conditioning that any or all of us have around racism. We're not seeing the way things actually are. There's all kinds of different ways. It can be deeply embedded, stuff we haven't uprooted yet. And we have this opportunity to really look, to really change thank you thank you everyone thank you for this time together these last four weeks 